we can turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, and it's fun to now come to a transition in Daniel's writings. It's oftentimes hard to categorize the book of Daniel. What is it? Is it a historical narrative or is it prophecy? And indeed, there are both in the book, and we now turn in Daniel chapter 7, and through the rest of the book, we head to now prophecy. Well, chapters 1 through 6 are historical narrative as we've gone through the accounts of Nebuchadnezzar, the accounts of Daniel and the lion's den, and etc. We now come to chapters 7 through 12 where they are clearly prophetic in nature as God is unfolding through Daniel historical or visions of events to come, some of which have already been fulfilled and others are yet to be fulfilled And we get a rich insight into that. And even at this point, we have moved rather fast through the first few chapters, and now we get to slow down a bit as we look at the various details of these prophecies, for indeed there are many rich truths here uh, in this section. And we'll pick up here tonight in Daniel chapter 7, and particularly work through the first eight verses to unfold what... Daniel has seen in this section. It's interesting now, from chapter 7 through chapter 12, it is four visions that Daniel receives and gives insight into. Notice verse 1 as it starts, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Turn over to chapter 8, you see this in chapter 8 and verse 1 as well. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one who appeared to me previously. This is another vision and Daniel gives explanation and insight into it. Happens again in chapter 9 and verse 23, uh, Another vision comes here is Gabriel coming to bring insight. It says this, At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message, and notice, and gain understanding of the vision. This is now Gabriel's instruction to what the visions meant. And then lastly, in chapter 10 and verse 1, One more time, this is brought out. This is in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. A message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message, and notice, and had an understanding of the vision. And then there is explanation. So these last chapters, from chapter 7 through 12, is explanation of... God's unfolding of prophetic events. God is going to make it clear what is going to take place. And these are, again, tremendous uh, insights, prophetic insights. Insights that will ultimately lead to the end of, of the Gentile nations and the establishing of God's kingdom. It's going to come to the end of time as we know it, heading into eternity. God has unfolded and given a kind of roadmaps to the particular events. So this is where we come. And this is particularly chapter 7, the last chapter written in Aramaic, the last chapter in which God is speaking to the Gentile nations, from chapter 8 through 12, he then goes back to the Hebrew and he's speaking to the Hebrew nation and giving encouragement and exhortation to them. This chapter 7, as we pointed out before, parallels chapter 2, and a lot of the events parallel, as we'll see. It started with a prophetic vision as to the events that would come through history, and he ends his message among the Gentiles with a similar message. And Daniel here is looking out and giving vision and insight and revelation to the events that are going to carry out to the end of time. 
How is it that the Gentile nations will come to an end? How is it that God will establish his kingdom and the final ruler who's going to rule? These are the things that God is going to unfold in these other chapters. Now, what's rather interesting is this. In all of history, history is moving towards a totalitarian rule by one. Nebuchadnezzar started it. He started with a totalitarian rule. He ruled over the known world at the time. He was the head of gold, and he was the one who had total authority, no rivals whatsoever. From that time on, every other authority that came, every other kingdom that came, there's a limitation of power until the final kingdom comes when there will be the ultimate ruler, the Son of Man, as we're going to see introduced by that title here in Daniel chapter 7, there will be the Son of Man who will be the ultimate ruler again. The one who will have a totalitarian rule. The one who is going to set up his perfect kingdom. The one who is going to have a perfect reign. And that perfect reign is going to be for eternity. But until that time comes, there are many we could say antichrists. There are many who are trying to take that role upon themselves, many who are pushing for that kind of rule, that kind of authority themselves. And it's interesting, even now, you can kind of look around and see some of little tastes of that. Putin trying to take over Ukraine for Russia to have a greater rule. Xi Jinping trying to take over Taiwan and other places for China's rule. There's always an attempt for rulers to gain more ground, more territory, to solidify their power, to expand their base, to expand their influence. There's always some of that taking place. And as we even look at the details in the vision before us, and we start to look down in and see the events to come, this will even continue on until the ultimate authority comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone will set up his eternal kingdom. So Daniel is again unfolding these events, and so while we see in maybe little parts today some of these things, we are anticipating the full revelation of these events, the full experience of this. So Daniel, again, as I said, gives us the full roadmap until the end of time. And God is demonstrating in all of this, as he gives the details, there's something significant about prophecy that God demonstrates the riches of his power in the midst of prophecy. Because he is saying to the nations, this is what is going to take place. And he is saying it well in advance before it ever occurred. Well before, I mean, generations and hundreds of years before it even occurred. He is telling exactly what is going to happen. And he is demonstrating in the midst of this that he is accomplishing his good purposes that he is going to accomplish it and nobody can stop it. And not only is he going to accomplish it, but he's going to accomplish it in precision. And that is some of what we see unfolded in these chapters. Especially now when we can look back on historical events and see the exact pre precision that God demonstrated in fulfilling these prophecies. So in... All of that's to say is this is starting right now here in chapter 7. That Daniel is beginning to give these prophecies. One commentator said this, Not only is Daniel 7 one of the most important chapters in this book, it is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament because it provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events and the future kingdom of Christ. With its focus on Jesus Christ as a ruler of his future kingdom, this chapter functions as a centerpiece of Old Testament revelation concerning the Messiah's final kingdom. It is a tremendous chapter that shows how the final judgment in which God will destroy the last defiant Gentile nation and the ruler, then God will give his everlasting kingdom to Christ and to his people. These are the glories that we are about to get into when we get into Daniel chapter 7 here. God has laid out the details specifically. Now, as even before we get into the details, as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, you know, 
prophecy is a bit like divine trash talking. It's kind of like God saying, this is what I'm going to do, and good luck stopping it. You know, it is God saying to Satan, this is it. This is what's going to happen, and then he does it, and it can't be stopped. There's a famous story of a basketball player. Now all the retired basketball players are speaking online and giving little insights and one particular guy was asked, you know, who is the greatest trash talker, you know, in basketball? Of course, they had all kinds of different guys, but they ultimately said this, the greatest trash talker was Larry Bird. That he was in one particular game, he was uh, going up in this big game and the game was tied in the final seconds. The Celtics had the ball, they had called a timeout. They'd come out of the timeout, and Larry Bird came onto the court and came on to his rival who was guarding him, and he said, okay, I'm, we're going to win the game now. And the guy replied, yeah, right, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to run over there, I'm going to get a screen, I'm going to fight over to the corner here, the ball's going to be inbounded to me, I'm going to catch it, I'm going to shoot it over you, I'm going to make it, and we're going to win the game. The guy said, yeah, right, you know, you just told me the final play, it's not, that's not going to happen, and Sure enough, it unfolded exactly as he said. He ran to the corner, got a screen, faded down to the side, the inbound passed to him, he shot it over the guy, he made it, they walked off, the team won. I figure there is a sense prophecy is just like that. God saying, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do, and I'm going to go down to the littlest detail, and I'm going to make sure every event is fulfilled in this exact way. I'm telling you it's coming, and on top of that, I'm going to do it hundreds, even thousands of years ahead, and you won't be able to stop it. No one will be able to stop it. As if God is saying to Satan at this time, I'm going to let you know how it's all going to play out. Now watch. Watch as I accomplish it. That's prophecy. And you see that as it's unfolded here in Daniel chapter 7, particularly thus far where we have seen fulfillment already of many of these prophecies. And while there's details yet to come, everything thus far has been fulfilled exactly as God has stated it. A powerful demonstration of God's omniscience. A powerful demonstration of God's omnipotence. He, he knows all things and he has the power to accomplish all that he says that he is going to accomplish and there are none who can stop it. No one can thwart the purposes of God. And even thinking about this, this isn't happenstance. These weren't kind of some guesses that Daniel was making in reading some tea leaves as to figure out what's going to happen. It wasn't Daniel just kind of maybe you know, looking at the stars and figuring out the details. The details and things that were written about were so precise and so accurate that there's no way chance could have brought about these kinds of revelations. In fact, there's a fellow by the name of Peter Stoner who wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. And Peter was a chairman of the mathematics and astronomy departments at Pasadena City College until 1953 when he went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. And he served as the chairman of the science division. And he wrote a, this book, Science Speaks, during that time. And in one chapter, chapter 2, a chapter which he calls Prophetic Accuracy, Here's what he wrote, or just commentating on what he wrote. So this is fascinating. He takes Ezekiel chapter 26 and begins to calculate the odds of the fulfillment of all the prophecies in Ezekiel chapter 26. And Ezekiel chapter 26 covers the prophecies of Tyre. And there are seven prophecies that are contained in that chapter, which was written back in 590 B.C. And the seven prophecies are this. Nebuchadnezzar shall conquer the city. That's in verses 7 through 11. And that the other nations are going to assist Nebuchadnezzar. That's in verse 3. And the city will be made bare like a rock. That's in verse 4 and verse 14. 
And it will become a place of, for the spreading of fishing nets and Verses 5 and verse 14, and stones and its timbers are going to be thrown into the sea. Verse 12, and the city will fear greatly at the fall, or other cities will fear greatly at the fall of Tyre. Verse 16, and the old city of Tyre will never be rebuilt again. Verse 14, seven prophecies describing what's going to happen to Tyre. Again, that was in 590 B.C. Well, Four years later, after that prophecy was given, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Tyre. The siege lasted 13 years, and the city fell in 573 B.C. It was discovered that everything of value had been moved to a nearby island. Now notice, 240 years later, Alexander the Great came by, And he arrived on the scene, and he feared that Tyre was going to use its fleet against his homeland. So he decided to take the island where the city had been moved. And he accomplished this goal by building a causeway from the mainland to the island. And what he used to build that causeway was all of the ruins from the city of Tyre. They threw all the building materials into the sea and built the pathway to the island. And the neighboring cities were so frightened by Alexander's conquest that they immediately opened their gates to him. Ever since that time, Tyre had remained in ruins and is a place where fishermen spread their nets. Thus, every detail of prophecy was fulfilled exactly. Now, Stoner, in his book, calculated the odds. What are the odds? Of all seven prophecies, mind you, 240 years later from the events when it started to when it was finally fulfilled, all those events being fulfilled, what are the odds? Well, the odds are one in 75 million. For seven different prophecies to be filled, seven particular details to be fulfilled on that nation, one in 75 million, that is 7.5 times 10 to the seventh power. So then Stoner sets back and he calculates, well, what about the other prophecies? And we started factoring in Samaria and Gaza and Ashkelon and Jericho and Palestine and Moab and Ammon and Edom and Babylon. And he started calculating these odds, calculating the odds of the closing of the eastern gate, Ezekiel 44, 1-3, or the plowing of Mount Zion, Micah 3:12, and the enlargement of Jerusalem according to the prescribed pattern, Jeremiah 31, uh, 38 through 40. And he combined all of these prophecies, these 11 prophecies, and the combination of all 11 prophecies being fulfilled exactly would be one, or what, 506, or let's see, one in 5.76 times 59, or 10 to the 59th power. Or to put it like this, 576 with 57 zeros after it. Needless to say, that number is beyond reason, beyond understanding. Look, that's talking about 11 prophecies. You know how many prophecies that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled when he came? 300. How many prophecies total that Jesus Christ, have been made about Jesus Christ? 450. 300 prophecies alone that Jesus Christ fulfilling. All this to say is this, these events don't happen by accident. These events happen by a divine work of God who's demonstrated his great wisdom and power. This is why the prophet said, Isaiah said, recording God's words, God says this in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. And notice, what makes you God? What makes you distinct? Here's what he says, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good purpose. The godness of God is demonstrated in his proclamation of events to come and then his fulfillment. So if I get a little riled up about prophecy and its fulfillment, it's because the glory of God is at stake. 
And when one wants to kind of allegorize the details and, and kind of uh, mystify them and make them a bit of an allegory so as to kind of say, hey, we're living in the kingdom now, don't rob God of his glory. Because indeed, he has fulfilled these things literally up to this point. Why will he not complete it that way when it demonstrates the riches of his glory? Well, that's warm up. Now we get to look at the text and the remaining moments that we have here in this account. So God is demonstrating through Daniel the greatness of his work to come. Let's just begin by reading the first eight verses and then we'll start making some observations together. Here's what Daniel writes. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and it made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat." And after this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Well, tonight we will begin to look at the details of this marvelous vision And as we go on from verse 15 and following, Daniel interprets it. So we're not going to get to the interpretation tonight. We're just going to make some observations for us. And then the next time together, we will hope to get to the interpretation. We still have a kingdom in between there. So we we have a lot to cover in this marvelous text. But notice the details. First of all, verse 1 starts for us. It tells us when this was given. It was given in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. The king, Daniel, saw this vision. This time, Belshazzar, in his first year, we know the dating of this. This is the third year of King Nabonidus, Belshazzar's dad. This is 553 B.C. The events now in chapter 7 goes back chronologically. You remember we had just come out of the events in the early 530s or late 530s in Daniel chapter 6. So here we are going back in time, back to 553 B.C. So chronologically the chapters fall out of order. Because if we were to chronologically put this chapter, chapter 7 would come before chapter 4 in events, chronological events. But here, we come to Belshazzar, who was named co-regent there in Babylon and made a ruler. Nabonidus had left and had gone on a great journey. It is now Belshazzar who is the ruling leader. So here, Daniel writes that at this time, he receives this vision and he begins to write down this vision. And again, this Vision here is not only explanation to the Gentile nations what is going to come, but it is anticipatory for the Jewish nation, for Israel. It's preparing them. 
It's preparing them for the events to come, encouraging them in their details. And, now, and again, think about this for a moment. If you were a Jew in captivity under Babylonian rule, wondering when will we be restored to prominence? When will our glory return? Will we come back again as a nation? What is the plan? What is God's plan for us? And we were God's chosen people. If we're the elect of God, if we're the people that God is going to bless, when will that come? And here is a little glimpse to that, particularly once we get to verse 9 and following when we see the coming of God's work among Israel. So here in verse 1 is the timing. This was given the time of Belshazzar's rule in his first year when he took over in 553 B.C. Now going further, there's some details here that this chapter and the events of this chapter 7 correlates with the events that happened in chapter 2. The prophecy that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. The prophecy given to Nebuchadnezzar is a little different because in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, in his dream, he sees an image of a statue. And in that statue, it had multiple parts, a head of gold and a body of silver and and bronze and ultimately clay and iron. So he had this image in chapter 2, but there is now a vision here in chapter 7 of these different beasts that are given. So also notice the distinction. In chapter 2, the image is given to the Gentile king and it's presented in a way to the Gentiles of God's final events in a glorious way, this glorious image. Here in chapter 7, the vision comes to Daniel and it's given from a divine perspective and the image is of beasts. These beasts like a lion and like a bear and like a leopard and then this undescribable beast that will come. So what would be exalting to Nebuchadnezzar now is the revealing of the hostilities through the prophet Daniel. And in this particular prophecy then, Daniel begins to add some more details. And this is what I wanted to point out here. So while there was a similar vision in chapter 2, speaking of the events to come, chapter 7 gives us some of the same details, but then takes it further. In chapter 2, you remember, in that final kingdom that came, it came with two legs, and then you had feet of clay mixed with iron, and then in chapter 2 it describes that the feet having ten toes. All here... The same beast coming in, in verse 7 and 8, the same beast which comes, this beast has, as verse 8 indicates at the end, had ten horns in verse 7. And then in verse 8, he goes further and speaks of these ten horns and another horn coming which is going to uproot it, uproot three of them. Point being is that in this prophecy, God takes us a little bit further. And he gives us a little more detail. And that's exactly what is going to happen from now from chapter 7 all through chapter 12. God is going to unfold some more details tying to a particular event, a particular prophecy. But with each vision, he gives a little more detail, a little more explanation, a little more of the events that are going to come. Let me just show you this, how this unfolds a little bit. Jump down to verse 25 and see this. And this is when he goes in and explains to us the details of the ten horns and what's going to take place. So we will get to this eventually, but I want to point out in verse 25, he's speaking of this horn. he He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand, and notice, for a time, times, and half a time. It gives this little detail here of what's going to happen for how long this one is going to work. He is going to operate for a time, times, and half a time. Now notice this little phrase here that gets carried on through many prophecies. 
This little detail of time, times, and half a time. Or is called in the Scriptures 42 months. Or is called 1,260 days. Or time, times, and half a time. Let me show you this. Turn over to chapter 12 and verse 7. You see this phrase come out again in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7. It says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river and as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be accomplished. Jump down to verse 11. From the the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. They're speaking of a particular exact time. This carries on, this particular message carries on. Turn over to the book of Revelation. Let me just show you a few passages in Revelation, starting in verse 12. What I am demonstrating to you is this, that in God's prophecies, in particular events, God has a particular prophecy that he keeps adding details to, that we could tie into and see similarities of overlap. Chapter Revelation, chapter 11 and verse 2 is the, the next one. Notice it says this, Leave out of the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And notice, they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Turn over to chapter 12, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for, notice, 1,260 days. Jump down to verse 14 of chapter 12. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpents. One more time over in chapter 13 and verse 5. How long is this going to last? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act. Notice for 42 months was given to him. All this to point out that there was a particular amount of time. A time that would last 100 or 1,260 days, 42 months. Three and a half years, or time, times, and half a time. Say this, if we could turn over to Matthew chapter 24, just to show you our Lord's words on these events. Our Lord says it like this in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 15. The explanation would be this. Would you expect that these events are going to happen literally? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ expected that when he says this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then he goes on and explains the events. Saying ultimately what you expected to see in Daniel, which Daniel said it was going to come, when you see these things, get ready, and then he adds more details. How does to say then this? God is unfolding his details and revealing more and more throughout progressive revelation. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7. That's what's taking place here in Daniel chapter 7. You would ask, why the repeat from details in chapter 2 to repeating the same event in chapter 7? It is, the answer is this. God is giving us more. 
He's giving Israel more insight. He's giving us, his readers, because these things are recorded for us and for our instruction. Our instruction. So he is giving us more details that was taking place. That's why he wrote it down again. And while there are, again, prophetic overlaps, there are details that we can begin to connect these prophecies together because the details are lining up. So what we see in the first kind of principle, just as an observation in this, is that God is giving us a progressive understanding of the future events to come. And we're going to see that from chapter 7, 8 through 12. God gives a little more details, a little more explanation of these events. The question in your mind and my mind, well, what is this horn, this little horn that rises up? That's going to be answered for us. Well, who is this horn? Oh, that's going to be answered for us. What is he going to do? That will be answered for us. What's going to be his end? That will be answered for us. All those details that we would naturally wonder, God unfolds for us here. So this, again, would be the first kind of observation for us. Second observation we would make, of course, is the distinction, why he's writing it. In this particular way here in chapter 7 is to show the divine perspective of these nations, these nations that are rising up, these beasts, are des- or these nations are described as beasts because they are described from the divine vantage point. They are, again, ferocious, self-seeking, hostile, opposed to the rule of God, and God gives them a period or time. So that being said, let's just look at the details to set up the events. All of this ultimately leads to the reign of the one who is called the Ancient of Days from verses 9 and on. Preceding that reign comes these four great kingdoms. And in these four great kingdoms, the text there indicates in verse 2, Daniel explains the events of how he came out. He says this, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The word winds there could be described as winds or spirits. I think the idea is that from four corners of the earth, from every direction, the wind was coming and stirring up the event. On top of that, I think the indication would be that God's divine movement behind it, the spirits behind it, that there was some kind of force behind the rising up of each of these nations. They didn't just rise up on their own. They were being moved particularly And as this vision says, it stirred up and out of the stirring up of the great sea came these four great beasts. Notice verse 3. There were four of them and they were coming up from the sea and each one was different from the others. So there were four distinct beasts that came up from the sea. They were distinct. They had distinct characteristics. And they came up in succession as you read it. They didn't come up at the same time. It was one right after the other, the succession in which these beasts came up. Now notice the first beast in verse 4. The first was like a lion, and the wings of it, it had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground, and it was made to stand on two feet like a man. It had a human mind, also was given to it. Now understand that what Daniel is describing here is imagery. Notice what the, again what it says. The first was like a lion. It wasn't an actual lion, but it was like a lion. It had imagery to it. And it resembled again or had wings of an eagle. That is to say, it was like a lion. It was powerful. It had greatness to it. And it is agreed upon and even interpreted later. This is the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon itself valued lions. Valued even if you were to find bricks from Babylon period of time, you would have it stamped on that brick, lions with eagles' wings in it. There was a particular characteristic of Babylonian uh, symbology that had this stamp on it. The lion was the king of beasts. The 
Eagle's wing was a king of birds to symbolize the greatness and the speed by which the Babylonian kingdom came into this world. And of course, it, this symbolizes or reflects Nebuchadnezzar as the golden head of that image. Nebuchadnezzar was the great high point of that image. In chapter 2, here this beast is the great king, the king of beasts, the king of birds. It says of this particular uh, beast in verse 4 that he was made to stand on his own two feet like a man. He also had his wings plucked, and then he was given a human mind also was given to it. it uh, many believe and concur that this would be the description of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar as he lost his mind, was restored, allowed to stand and receive his, his um, mental faculties again. But it doesn't stop there. The next beast comes, and this beast is equally as terrifying. Verse 5, Behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs, and were in its mouth be- between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. This beast is like a bear. It wasn't an actual bear, is like a bear. And unlike the king of beasts, this one moved slowly. This one moved carefully, and it moved, and it lumbered along. It was large. It had distinct parts about it. In fact, it said it was interesting within this bear, it says he had one side raised up against the other side. It was to be believed that one believed that one side was greater than the other. And when you compared the Mede and the Persian kingdoms, you would see that one was stronger than the other. Militarily, the Persian Empire was stronger than the Media Empire. The Medes and the Persians combined together to be a great force. And they were such a great force, and they conquered three nations. They conquered three territories. That's why there were three ribs in their mouth. They conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., Lydia in 546 B.C., and Egypt in 525 B.C. And when the Medes and the Persians conquered these three territories, they then dominated the known world at that time why the order was given to it for it to devour, for it to take over, to, for it to go out and eat much, just to go rule. This leads to the third beast, and this is rather interesting, the third beast. I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. What is significant about this particular beast is this beast moved with great speed. It was like a leopard moving with great speed. And then each of the wings is describing the great speed by which it moves. This is a description of Alexander the Great, who conquered Asia Minor in 334 B.C., in fact, he conquered the known world in 10 short years by the age of 32. He had conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire to the borders of India. He had swept over that entire land in 10 quick years. That's why he was again described as a leopard and described as having four wings like a bird. He would move fast, move quickly. It's actually said of Alexander that he died weeping because he didn't have any more to conquer. He had moved so fast. But it was also interesting about this particular prophecy in verse 6 there indicates that this beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And when Greece had, when Alexander had passed away, his kingdom was divided into four parts and given to his four generals, each of them were to lead after him. Which then leads to the last beast, fourth one, there in verse 7. 
It says this, and after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. Now, it was interesting just by observation of this. Daniel doesn't even give it an animal. It just says it was a beast. It doesn't say it was like a lion or like a leopard or like anything else. It was a beast. It was dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong and had large iron teeth it devoured. In fact, it ruled for a very long time. It ruled and dominated for This would be a description of the Roman Empire, which had ruled for nearly 600 years in the West, ending in 476 AD, and ruled for about 1,500 years in the East, ending in 1453 AD. Speaking of the beast and its rule, it had a long rule. But he doesn't stop there. He then goes on and contemplates the horns. And he says, thinking about these horns, verse 8, and behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth uttering boasts. There is this horn that comes and uproots the others. And what we are going to see ultimately in the interpretation, verse 15 and following, is that there is a time period, a gap between the first events and these latter events. But there's over, there are parallels here. Ten horns relating to the ten toes in, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Ten toes describing ten distinct elements of the a revived Roman Empire, a Roman Empire which would have distinct rulers, a ten-nation confederacy working together. These ten horns are going to be ruling in this final kingdom, which we will see, Lord willing, next time. point for us is this, just as we conclude for tonight, we just only whet our appetite as to see this significance. God begins to unfold specific details about the things to came to come, and it unfolded exactly as he said. By the time Daniel is writing this, he is writing this while the Babylonian Empire is in power, the the first beast, the lion with its wings. On the heels of this is getting ready for the next beast to come, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after that, anticipating the leopard, the Greece Empire, and then ultimately the Roman Empire. And exactly, historically, it folded out exactly like that. What is distinct for us that we didn't anticipate at the time was the division of the Roman Empire having two periods of time. And we will see that in the weeks to come, exactly how it is that this Roman Empire would unfold. But what I want you to see is the importance of this. God is historically accomplishing these particular details. The next details are even more amazing. He's risen up these nations, whether Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greece, the Romans, then what we're going to see of the eternal kingdom. Let's notice again, verse 9 says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat and his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the 
court sat and the books were opened. There is a description of the divine throne room to come. But that's for next time. What does it all mean for us? And just for us to wrap up tonight, it would be this. When we come to these details, we come with a purpose. God expects us to understand something. They're given for a reason. Even as Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 15, these are the things that you can go to and see and understand. There's for a reason they're given to us. So the details are important. And at this particular time in the writing, it was important both to the Gentile nations for them to know their place, but also for the Jewish nation to have anticipation for what is to come. And for us, then, the Lord has given these things for us, for our encouragement, for our hope, for our faith, so that we can trust God's very word. And in particular, I would say, that God is glorified when he says exactly what's going to take place and then fulfills it exactly as he says it. And we will unfold that more the next time we meet. This was only setting up your appetite for what is to come. And then the joy comes in the actual interpretation in verse 15 as Daniel begins to explain the vision and its meaning to us and give us insight into that question, who is that or what is that little horn? What is it doing? Why is it important? What's the detail that God wants us to understand? And we will cover that, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just the beginning of this study, looking at the riches of your word, knowing that in all of these details that you have given them to us for a purpose. And oftentimes we feel like Daniel, just racking our mind, what is the meaning of this? And we are glad that Daniel, perplexed by that, wrestling and praying and seeking understanding, was able to record down for us the rich wisdom and insight. So that we're not left guessing, we're not left wondering. Your word unfolds and explains to us exactly what is to be known. And that which you've intended to reveal, that which we are to know, you have made known. And while our heart still longs for knowing the exact time, which you have not said to anyone, you have told us what you will accomplish. And so may our hope be in that, that you will fulfill your good will, that you accomplish all your purposes that your ways will not be thwarted, and that you are God, very God, and there's none like you, for you can declare the end from the beginning, and the things that have not taken place you have made known. For indeed, a prophet of old who stood up speaking for you must speak with exact accuracy, or else he was a false prophet. And thus far we rejoice, and all that you've declared has been fulfilled exactly and while we move into these things, and there are many ways, mysteries, and we, we seek to speak, not exerting our own will, seekly, seeking to understand your will. So direct us as we study your word to understand your exact will, so that in all things we would be built up and edified according to your good purposes. Thank you for this study tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen.